Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 91 of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian, the venerated teacher Gottlieb. I don't get it. Yes, you do. You know what this is about. This is a level up episode. And venerated Ooh. teacher from Rise of Eldrazi made your other level up guys actually level up. So we're playing the role of venerated teachers today. We're going back to kind of something we haven't done in a little while now, looking to bring some everlasting knowledge to our listeners this week. You go deep, man. I do. I I enjoy doing this. It sends me on obscure searches. And it also is like this weird thing where, wasn't there some card in Rise of Eldrazi that actually made creatures level up? And then I actually went and looked through the entire set of Rise of Eldrazi. And obviously <laughs> that has a million other distractions and points of excitement throughout the process. But I, I like coming up with my names every week. It's It's always fun. Good, good. We do have a level up episode, which is kind of good, kind of bad. It's bad because it means that Magic's in sort of a lull right now because we have to wait until preview season, but it's close. I so swear close. it's close. So close. I can, I can taste it. We've seen a couple cards. We saw the buy a box promo. Doesn't appear to be a disaster this time. That's always good. So we're, we're right there on the precipice of preview season. You don't think Convoke Fatty is going to be Nexus of Fading People? You don't, I don't, you don't think, it's I don't think so, no. It's, I mean, it, probably there's there may be a spot where you're able to use the card. That's fine. It's very different from Nexus of Fate, for sure. Cool. Well, we've been pretty busy. Uh, we had our auction end last Sunday, made about $3,000, I think. I didn't actually tabulate the, the final numbers or anything for the uh, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And that was excellent. Thank you to everyone who bid, who participated in any way, whether it was just like raising awareness, sharing it, commenting on it, whatever. Really appreciate it. And it went very, very well. Yeah, this is, of all the things we've done in my time with the podcast, this is probably what I'm most proud of. It's awesome that our listeners, our patrons, everyone came together to make this thing work. And I know it exceeded my expectations. It sounds like it also exceeded your expectations. We made a nice little chunk of change for a very worthwhile charity. So super awesome experience to be a part of. Yeah, absolutely, man. I, you know, th- this is the third one that I've been involved in and I'm, I'm just going to keep it going. Yeah. I mean, what a, what a great way to use your platform, right? To be able to do this on a semi-regular basis. It's kind of amazing. And, you know, when I wrote my long screed, that certainly embarrassed you about why I think you're a Hall of Famer. This was (laughs) a large part of it. I I mean, this is a a really special thing you do. So definitely keep it up. Well, you're still the worst. I know. (laughs) What else? Uh, Guilds of Ravnica coming up, standard rotation. I... I don't know that, I mean, I know people are excited, right? I don't know that they're any more excited than I am. I feel like we need this. Yeah, I mean, yes. (laughs) I'm desperate for this rotation. I still lament the fact that we had a faster rotation schedule and 
lost it somewhere along the way. And I think we've talked about this before. I understand the reasoning. I really do. It's just unfortunate. I love new formats. I love exploring new formats. It feels like we have been playing with Kaladesh cards forever. And this is not a a block that's going to go down well in the history of Magic. It had a lot of problems with it pretty much from the very beginning. And each time you dealt with one problem, a new problem was unearthed. Things got to a stable point by the end, but certainly not an all-time great standard format. An interesting one, a unique one, but one I'm certainly very excited to get to leave behind finally. Yeah, I'm not mad. Yep. It is like doubly exciting because it's Ravnica while also having this rotation of just this awful, awful mess that I want to forget, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I'm trying to say it as kindly as possible. And I mean, I guess this is like, it's also an interesting chapter in my podcast history now because these cards have been here. I mean, I think I started at hour of devastation ish timeframe. So I mean, these cards were already ingrained as part of the universe when I came on board and, and started casting with you. So it's nice to have a fresh slate. Number one, because I'm sick of the old slate. Number two, because I really feel like fresh environments are where I excel and where I can find edges and find new strategies and, and great tech to give to our listeners. And I'm really excited to have the chance to do that. All right, man. Pressure's on. I, I'm fine with it. I've, I've done it before. I'm going to do it again. Awesome. Last thing before we get into the actual episode, I want to talk about head games a little bit. Episode sure. three has just come out. Yep. Yep. We just released episode three and it seems like we have a hit on our hands. Uh, people are listening in large numbers. The feedback I'm getting is almost universally positive. I, I mean, I think part of that is that we're blessed with like the best supporters and listeners on the planet and they're just good people and positive people. So maybe if they have bad things to say, they're just being kind and not saying them to me. But it seems like people are digging this podcast. You know, we were out at GPLA a couple of weeks ago and met a bunch of people and everyone wanted to talk about head games and seemed to be really into it. And I think we're making a difference in people's approach to not only magic, but maybe life, hopefully. Jonathan is so good at what he does. Like he's just yeah. really bright and he loves his craft. He has so much knowledge to share. And when I tell you the ideas we have coming up and the future content we're going to create is even better than what we've done so far, I promise I'm not exaggerating. We have such cool things in the works and really exciting stuff going on over there. So it's, it's gone fantastically so far. Yeah, I actually can't wait until you have a library of, you know, 20, 30 episodes, something like that. And I talk to someone who has not heard of the podcast and I get to point them to it because it's just going to be like, oh, this is like everything I ever want to know about, you know? Yeah, that's one of the cool things about it is that, you know, you and I get real excited when we get to do an episode that has some degree of timelessness to it, like we're doing today. But it's tough in the magic world because I think people depend on us for up to the minute really, really time-sensitive material. Like that's what we do here. And that's cool. I like doing that. But there's also something to be said about making a piece of work that can stand time a little bit better and that you can always point someone to. And like you said, that experience of, oh my God, I found this new thing that I love and I get to binge. I hope I get to do that for someone 
a year from now, they get to go listen to 50 straight episodes of Head Games. And I can't fathom someone wanting to listen to me talk for that long of a period of time. <laughs> but hopefully it happens. I'm crossing my fingers. I've done it, man. It's been pretty good. Yeah, yeah. You've put in a lot of hours at this point. I, I feel for you. But maybe you'll have some uh, some compadres soon who also have suffered through 50 straight hours of me. We, we can only hope, you know? Yeah, yeah. All right. Is it time? It's time. Let's do it. Okay. The premise is greatly inspired by Michael Majors, not necessarily like anything that he said or anything, but just how he went about uh, living his magic life, basically. Like he would pick up on some small interaction that I overlooked and he would just go as deep down the rabbit hole as he possibly could. And for people who were following his work on Star City Games, you would definitely know what I'm talking about, where he would have relentless amounts of decklists with grapple with the past or inspiring statuary, these sorts of things that a lot of other people just sort of dismissed. It was interesting to me because he was very good at finding these cards that did things differently than any other card in the format and just try and build around them, push them as hard as he could. And then, you know, maybe at the end of the day, he was just like, Oh, this is a little bit short or whatever. But then he would have that in his back pocket for when something else came out that would then help this engine that he's created. So with grapple with the past, I think of elder deep fiend and uh, PT shadows or eldritch moon, PT eldritch moon, eldritch moon. Yeah. Yeah. Where, uh, Andrew Brown got to make top eight with very early design of one of Majors' decks and uh, Owen made it to the finals with another Elder Deep Fiend grapple with the past deck. And it's just Majors knew what was up, you know, like he saw the power of that sort of card and he didn't know exactly where it was going to lead him. Right. But it was like, this is this thing that I should be building around. And if he had not realized that, that that was a card that he could build around. Who knows what would have happened when Elder Deep Fiend came out, right? Like if you do not have the capability to see that those sorts of things are viable and actually reasonable to build a deck around, like you're you're just completely limiting your options. And I see this happen a lot of time when preview season comes up. So this is actually like kind of fortuitous timing for this episode too. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is. And hearing you describe Major's approach to deck building... There's more majors in me than Jerry Thompson in me. Oh, yeah. I, 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 there's a lot more I relate to about that process than you are iterating and fine tuning. And I think you've seen that in Deckless I've put forth where they are basically drafts of ideas. And I'm really good at recognizing super powerful ideas and exploitable ideas and then finding those last few slots and getting everything tuned down and making the desk as tight as possible is where... I have to rely on someone like you to finally get things nicely tuned or, you know, whoever it is who's picking up the deck and, and is able to ultimately carry it to success. But this is where over the course of my magic career, I've gotten paid. This is where my good finishes come from. This is where my noteworthy deck building comes from. The exact process you're describing right now, finding interactions that demand attention and pushing them as hard as I possibly can until they just shatter into a million pieces. Yeah, and I think the overarching trend during preview season tends to be 
a card like Grapple with the Past gets revealed or Inspiring Statuary or something along those lines. And a person's first response is, well, this doesn't fit in any deck that I can currently think of. Therefore, it must be trash. But we've seen time and time again that preview season happens, a new set gets released, and slowly but surely new ideas and new decks you know, get filtered actually into the metagame. And when a preview season is happening, the decks that exist then are very rarely decks that exist, you know, a month or two from then. So to even just have the thought that like, oh, these cards don't fit into a deck that already exists, I think is just completely flawed because the format's not going to be the same. Like everything is going to change. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And in fact, if I were to if I was trying to build a magic player from scratch, like I was creating their training regimen and had to do my best to shape them into a complete magic player. One of the tasks I would give them every single set that came out would be build me 50 different decks around novel ideas. Cause they're there every single release. There's 50 different decks that are doing something completely different, have some new engine, some new interactions, some new source of value that you can look into and try and exploit. And are the vast majority of them nowhere near near good enough? Absolutely, 100%. You know, if you followed my exploits come the release of Dominaria or the M19 release, you saw me play some decks, which they were never going to make it. I'm thinking of Mending of Dominaria and Scapeshift decks were something I wasted a little bit of time on. That deck was never going to be good enough, but there was a point of interaction that interests me. And I think that that particular iteration would need some dramatic tools, things we couldn't even envision right now to ever make it into the realm of playability. It's it's very far off. But still, if those weirdo tools ever showed up, I know that there's something there. There is some interaction that is obscenely powerful in its optimal form. And spotting those things out are... It's the key to integrating new pieces. I mean, you talked about Inspiring Statuary. How long was Inspiring Statuary just sitting in the format doing absolutely nothing before it was finally able to achieve something with the release of Psy, Master Thopterist, which was really the key card to unlock Inspiring Statuary? Right. With Guilds of Ravnica being the next set and Ravnica being the next block that's coming up, there are certain cards that are lurking out there, like Citrus Supplier is one where it's just like, man, I, I hope... Like Golgari and or Demir, something along those lines, have some graveyard things that they're trying to do because like Citrus Supplier is one of those cards that, yeah, you could use it with Gate to the Afterlife and God Pharaoh's Gift, but for the most part has not really had a chance to shine outside of modern. And I feel like once you have a certain amount of tools in standard, like that is the type of card that could just be straight busted. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good example. And like you said, not a card that has set standard on fire thus far by any means. You know, fringe play doing much more in modern at this point. And man, does that point to wait till this gets the right pieces around it? Because if you're a good enough card on rate for modern and even legacy, where Stitcher Supplier has also made some occasional appearances, that means you're certainly good enough on rate for standard. You just need the right support around you. Speaking to the themes of Ravnica, like you said, Golgari, Demir it's very likely that something pops up for Stitcher Supplier to be doing in this next block. Yeah, and there was also a deck that got 26 that the Team Standard Open in Dallas that was like Desecrated Tome, Reassembling Skeleton, Scrap Heap Scrounger, and Stitcher Supplier with like makeshift munitions. So Scrap Heap Scrounger is gone, right? But it's like 
that sort of shell mostly still exists too. So it's like, it, it really doesn't take much, you know? Right, right. Especially a card that powerful. Yeah. So that sort of thing is is pretty exciting. And I think that's just where like a lot of people pass and they'll see Stitcher Supplier just be like, okay, cool. I don't know where this belongs. So I'm just going to move on with my life and forget that this thing ever existed, right? And then someone else shows up to a tournament with a deck that utilizes that card. And they're just like, oh man, like, wow, this deck is like so crazy and so innovative. Like, how did this person come up with it? And it's sometimes it is just being in the right place at the right time kind of thing. It's like you see one idea somewhere, you see another idea somewhere, and then something just like clicks in your head or whatever. But people could just be doing this themselves, you know? And I think that, especially for our audience, like I I think that we are a spike-based podcast and that is legit. But like you said, Brian, times when you've had the most success have come as a result of, building decks in this way, right? Like you can play red, black aggro every single weekend and have a 55, 60% win rate or whatever. But if you actually want to just annihilate a tournament, building decks this way is going to give you that chance. It's it's not going to happen every time. And, you know, sometimes you're going to be wrong. Sometimes it's not going to work out. Sometimes you'll have a great deck and you'll just get beaten anyway, right? But for times when, uh, you know, you're you're going into a pro tour and you're working by yourself, for the most part, and uh, you don't know how you can get a leg up on other people. It's like exploit these busted interactions. Yeah, swing for the fences. That's kind of where I fall. And, you know, I think this is where a lot of when we're discussing it, I think you perceive it and maybe even I present it as a reluctance to play the best deck. And that's not quite what's going on, because when I'm convinced that this really is the best deck. There's nothing else out there. I can be talked into it. But where I feel like there's still potential to break something wide open, to continue evolving an underdeveloped interaction. And, you know, I, I saw this a couple of weeks ago with Nexus of Fate, where I, I still think there's room for Nexus of Fate to be a better deck than it is right now. And that's why it's hard for me to pick up something like Red Black in that instance, because I believe with the right push, you get that overwhelming edge against the entire field. And you're right that you can spend all your time tuning an insane red blacklist and go in with a 57% matchup percentage against the entire field. And that's an awesome place to be for a tournament. But I've also had it where, you know, my matchup percentage against the field was closer to 65, 66, maybe 70% in my best moments. And you feel untouchable on those days. And you really can't capture anything like that feeling. And without this drive and this risk, it's not something you can ever achieve. And it makes me sad that players are closing themselves off to that possibility. Because for me, that experience, that understanding of the format, those are my fondest memories of Magic and what I feel are my greatest accomplishments in Magic. I feel the same way. And I think that I was probably operating at a similar line as where you are now, where it's like, oh, well, I think I have an idea for how to make this Nexus deck good. Let's just play this in the tournament. And now how I operate more these days is, am I 100% convinced that this is better than anything else I could be doing? Right. If no, then I'm just going to register red black, right? Like my, my stats are not great, especially since this is like Hall of Fame season or whatever. And people are looking at it and like comparing me to other people and stuff. And a lot of that is because I was, you know, playing these decks that were not quite there, you know, 
So I've I've done this like a little bit too much in the past, and I do think that there's a happy medium. You know, like right. now I air more on the red black side, and you're still over in Nexus Land, and I do think that there's a happy medium in between us, which is where I would like our listeners to end up. Right. And I, I, you know, you can make the argument that having you on one side and me on the other side is maybe getting our listeners to that point right in the middle where they're able to grab, you know, my really good idea that comes out once every while, be it blue, white control, or maybe you love the hour of promise decks that I worked a lot on. You get to grab that in that instance, but most of the time they're able to default to well-tuned red, black and still have both those options available to them. That's my optimistic interpretation of what we do here every week is you're giving them the best (laughs) of both worlds. Yeah, I I certainly hope that's the case. I mean, it's not like I am completely shut off from that line of stuff. It's like I still make a lot of content. I still make a lot of brews, especially during preview season and especially before the first couple tournaments. And I don't think that there's anything that could change in my life that would make it so... I stop reading articles and looking at all the deck lists that I possibly can because there's things like this black red munitions desecrated tome deck where it's just like I could very easily have that just fly under the radar and not notice it, you know, mm-hmm. but now I have that in my back pocket and I, I like that feeling. I like having all the information and being able to make decisions from that. Even if it's not like, oh, I'm definitely going to register desecrated tome or whatever, but like maybe that tome deck had a sweet plan that I could integrate into normal red black, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, a sideboard option, possibly. Yeah. A a lot of weird stuff can come out of just knowing everything that's going on. Let me ask you a question. Do you think this process, this, this brewing process, this searching for kind of elusive overpowered decks, which is in the vast majority of cases going to be fruitless. Do you think it informs your iteration and your more refined deck building, your optimization of known archetypes? Do you get anything from the process of exploration that adds to that process? That's a good question. And I'm I'm not sure if I'm going to overstate this or not, but I do think that by exploring different decks, different strategies, even in the context of a standard format that is 40% red decks, I am learning more about how to build decks and certain archetypes that I'll become more familiar with those decks and like things that they need maybe in other formats, whether it be like, you know, going back to modern or legacy or even just moving forward into GRN standard, right? Mm-hmm. Where by building around combo decks, I-, I will just get better at building combo decks and be able to see when maybe this deck can have a transformational sideboard or in the case of the inspiring statuary paradoxical outcome deck, it's like, okay, well, instead of actually comboing people, you can just kill them with Psy and Karn and still have this awesome engine, right? Like that is a thing that I don't think most people would be able to do just by looking at the deck, but the more you explore and the more things that you try, the more the world just kind of opens up to you. I like that statement a lot about, the world opening up to you. Explain what you mean a little bit more by that statement. Like clarify how you feel like paths are opening up to you when you are undertaking this process. Is is there a good way to describe this? So Sam Black wrote an article about building in clusters, which is basically like if I play, I'm just going to name off some nonsense cards because there's no way I'm going to remember all of his stuff, but he's like, all right, if I want to play a, a white weenie deck with Kithian or whatever, like then I'll use Mox Amber and Mox Amber makes me want Leon and Arbiter and, or whatever. 
And then it's like, well, that card makes me want Ghost Quarter. You know, obviously this is nonsense or whatever, but it's just like, okay, this is like a package in a deck, right? Mm -hmm. And he will just think about it in various clusters like that. And without knowledge of that stuff, I, I wouldn't be able to build around that stuff. It's like by working with majors, I got to see grapple with the past in combination with Jace Friends Prodigy. And it's just like, that's a hell of a combo, yes. right? And then you end up including Elder Deep Fiend into your grapple deck. And it's like, whoa, now our grapples are way better than they used to be. And the deck was already almost there, you know? But without knowing the grapple Jace interaction, how would I ever think to add that thing to a Deep Fiend deck, right? Right. Yeah, I don't know. It's just like you can look at a format in very narrow terms where it's like, all right, there's these Teferi control decks and then there are red decks and everything else is bad. But then you have people winning tournaments with black blue mid range and, and things like that, where it's like, no, like these these people were more than willing to explore other options and other alternatives rather than just closing off their mind completely and and just thinking that like Something is the truth when it's not. Hmm. Maybe this is a point where we can talk about packages you've seen succeed in the past. You already mentioned Jace, Friends Prodigy, and Grapple with the Past as a very successful one. Obviously, there's been other super successful interactions over the course of time. Do any spring to mind immediately when you're thinking of, oh, how can I look to integrate this into my game going forward? You know, what kind of things are you looking for that allowed you to identify these packages in the past? Just talk about some other successes you've had applying the same method of pushing on somewhat broken interactions. Yeah. Thinking back to days where I was most successful, there was a pretty good run where I was able to play Callblade into Delver into Flash. Back then, it wasn't you know, I was super spiky. I wanted to win, but I wanted to basically play the best blue deck because those were the decks that I enjoyed playing. And it just so happened that the best blue deck was like all of these tempo decks. And mm. coincidentally, all of these decks were things that were figured out like well after the set had been released. It wasn't like uh, Sword of Feast and Famine gets released and then everyone's like, oh, obviously you play Stoneforge Mystic and Stoneforge Mystic goes with Squadron Hawk and Squadron Hawk goes with Jace and I guess we'll put in some Wraths and Counterspells or whatever. Like, that is not what happened. It was like, some people put a sword in their green-white creature decks that had Stoneforge Mystic uh, and then Kibler played a couple Stoneforges in his Kago deck and then they're like, oh, this is busted. Let's play all four of them because this is what we want to be doing on turn two every game, you know? And that didn't really show up until after the Pro Tour. And I think the first set of tournaments when you could have played Delver, there might not have been a Pro Tour for Standard. Yeah, I remember no, it there being, was. I think it was an SCG format, wasn't it? It was It was Worlds, actually, because the, the CFB guys all top aided with Tempered Seal and people were playing Illusions. Right. Right, exactly. The The deck started based around like Phantasmal Bear and whatever the Lord of Illusions was as well. Right, and then it was like, why are we playing all these crappy illusions when we can just play a Geist of St. Traft? Right. And Geist of St. Traft is better than three illusions, you know? And then once you start cutting all these creatures, it's just like, yeah, okay, we just play Delver instead. Like, yeah. Delver is so much better than anything else you could be doing, and then you get room for all the Vapor Snags and Gut Shots and Mana Leaks and stuff. So and Rune Chanter's Pike is found at that point, and then the deck really right. takes off. Yeah, and then there's a lot of different 
variations of that deck. There were the 19 land Thoughtscour Rune Chanters Pike ones. There are ones that were a little bit more stable with a higher land count, fewer cantrips and swords and stuff. And then Restoration Angel got printed and you up the land count. But yeah, just that whole package, like Delver Snapcaster Geist, was not immediately obvious. People were trying to play Delver and were playing it successfully in Legacy, but no one ever really thought like, oh, I could actually do this in Standard too. It just, it took a very long time. Yeah, and in, in that case, it had to come with accepting cards that were quote-unquote underpowered, which is the most meaningless term in the history of Magic. The amount of damage that has been done to deck building and people's potential success by viewing cards as either appropriately powered or overpowered or underpowered is astronomical because those terms are so meaningless. Cards only matter in context. They are based on everything that's going on around them. A, a card does ne- it, it never exists in a vacuum and it's never worth analyzing under those grounds because it's all about what the card does in conjunction with the rest of your game plan and something like Vapor Snag, which now seems super powerful to me, but people weren't excited about Vapor Snag when it came out. I bet you were. You're the type of person who would be excited about Vapor Snag. <laughs> I was pretty excited about Vapor Snag. I was I was playing these 18 land mono blue decks very early on in the whole process and realizing like, oh, Vapor Snag's kind of insane actually. But initially, it was not one of the hyped cards in the set. No, and I love an unsummon and I, I like it more being able to be used as a defensive tool too, or not a defensive, but like, you know, they kill your creature, you can unsummon it, that sort of thing mm-hmm. where it's versatile. And in those situations, obviously the vapor snagging and you losing one life is not going to be a big deal, but I still just like kind of saw it as a downside, but like realistically it is just a better unsummon. Yeah. And in almost all situations, especially in that deck, it was just bonkers. But things continued to evolve as time went on. Mental Misstep became an important card. The right number of cantrips was something that wasn't immediately obvious. All this stuff, which now seems so obvious in retrospect, it all flew in the face of conventional knowledge. And it took people pushing this package together to make what was essentially like... I mean, if you've played Blue-White Delver in that standard... It felt like you were playing Legacy most of the time. You were just playing yeah. a completely different game than everyone else. And again, I've talked about how I've oscillated between looking for something and playing the best deck. When I found Delver, I didn't play anything else for about a year and a half. Like It was just very clearly the best deck. I iterated on Delver, and sometimes I made the deck worse by my iterations. But Same. regardless, it, it had my attention from the beginning, and it was very clearly just better than anything else you could be doing. Delver, Snapcaster, Gataxian Probe let you do some pretty dumb things. Mm-hmm. Just cheat on land. You basically always knew what was in your opponent's hand. Everything was super easy. Delver was also the first deck to actually incorporate Gutshot, yep. where Gutshot was maybe like a super narrow sideboard card. And then it was like, oh, like, Gutshot main deck? Like, is that is that good? Because, you know, like you said, people look at the card and they're like, oh, this is so underpowered. But... When you are on three lands all game and you basically just draw all gas, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Yeah. Spot on. It, it's all about the context surrounding it. Yeah. And Augur of Bolas, Restoration Angel came next and Snapcaster Mage was also involved in that. And the deck was a little bit different because it incorporated Sphinx's Revelation. So mm-hmm. you had like this tempo-y game plan that could also go very long. And I played that deck for basically the entirety of the season. And that was an Adam Prozac thing. It was just a thing that I saw him streaming. And I took to a Grand Prix, top eight of the Grand Prix. 
uh, with just straight blue white. And then was like, man, zombies is just an awful matchup. And I think it's going to be really popular. So then I added red to my deck and then like, that's how Jeskai flash became born. And that was a deck throughout the entirety of the season. But even in its infancy, it was, it wasn't even the right colors, you know? Yeah. But so this, this happens all the time. And if you think about what are the best decks in all of these formats just basically every format ever very rarely is it the decks you have week one week two week three of the format it just doesn't happen so by closing yourself off to these different interactions you're just limiting your ability especially in the early weeks of a format when basically everything is a brew here's an interesting question is there some logical reason why the better a package is the harder it should be to unlock. I mean, obviously that breaks down at a point. If something's very clearly broken on its face, everyone plays it. That's obvious. But where we get into kind of this middle ground where it's it's floating below the surface and it takes a little bit longer, a little bit deeper into the format to kind of unravel these things. Is there something to be said about how hidden an archetype is pointing to its ultimate power level once the optimal build is found? Sometimes it's contextual where this sort of thing isn't right until the format's in a certain place. Yeah. But a lot of the time, in the case of Cobblade, Delver, Flash, those things were just staples throughout the entirety of their tenure because they were so strong. Like, they warped the format. They were the format. They were the constraints that everyone else had to abide by once they were figured out. And I think it is things that generally change things fundamentally for Magic, like the existence of Cobblade as a deck has taught me a lot about magic theory as far as, oh, I can play this control deck while also playing this tempo game and people are going to sideboard against me poorly because they don't know exactly what my deck is going to be like next game. You know, they don't know if I'm going to be a beatdown deck or a control deck. And we didn't really have that. We didn't have these right. decks that were so able to just like, uh, shift positions, you know, and that's kind of been a new thing, I suppose. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, I think I see direct parallels between Stoneforge Mystic and Glintsleeve Siphoner, which are two very separate cards. But I think about the roles that they've played in their respective decks and how they are both able to present a clock, work as a defensive option. Obviously, Glintsleaf Siphoner doesn't play de- defense in the typical mold, but generating cards for a control deck is your defense. The more cards you have, the more answers you have. A- and I think you're right. This isn't really something we saw prior to this. I mean, you could call back to something like Rainbow Ifrit comes to mind if you want to go real old school for like a creature that would come down early. But that's generally not the way Rainbow Ifrit was used. You used it no. once you've reached a point of inevitability and were able to protect it ad nauseum at that point. It, it, it would never be vulnerable. And you almost never ran out of Rainbow or Freed on turn two. That was a very, very weird play for a number of reasons. Yeah, Miracle Grow was the thing that brought the Turbo Xerox stuff into the mainstream, I think. Turbo yeah. Xerox was like an old school Alan Comer deck that basically just played cantrips instead of lands. Like he was this control deck that never run, ran out of gas. And when... Trix was the biggest deck, this mono blue Illusions of Grandeur donate combo deck. He built a Winter Rub deck because they had a really tough time beating that card. And he used a bunch of cantrips with land grants as a way to play a super low land count. And 
granted, land grant is basically just like a bad fetch land, but it was all you had at the time, you know? Yeah. And since then, decks like Delver and a lot of the the legacy decks that get played, all the Delver decks, like these decks are built with those principles. And until we had those principles, that sort of style of deck just didn't exist. Right. It's it's so interesting how these things become like they become part of the language of magic and they become de facto strategies that we do our best to extrapolate across multiple formats, but all of them at their time, they're unfathomable. They look weird. They look like something you should have never been doing. And it takes someone saying, no, I think this is the right way to go about this and flying in the face of convention and you know, logic at the time, you're, you're really doing something illogical where you make these kind of deck building leaps. But that's how you push things forward. And, you know, in the case of Alan Comer, that's how he became a Hall of Famer by doing these exact type of things. Right. Another good example, I think, is Eldrazi, where going into that pro tour, BB and I decided we should play this deck. Like, we don't know what it's going to look like, but we should have Thought Not Seer and I of Ugin and Eldrazi Temple in our deck. And we worked for like a week and a half trying to figure out what the best build was. And we just failed miserably. The reason we failed was because we didn't realize that if you just mulled to five or mulled to four, you were like 95% to get a two mana land in your one of your opening hands. And you basically won every game where you had a two mana land. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's that sort of thing where it's like, we didn't think about that because it wasn't a thing that existed. But I'm, I'm sure just at some point someone was like, oh yeah, what's the math on that? Maybe I should just mull for a, a two mana land every single time. And it's just like, you know, light switch goes on and everything is different. Everything's done. Yeah. Another great example. Modern, especially recently, has been a very good example of this. We have Hardened Scales, uh, Corkland Ironworks, both winning semi-recent Grand Prix, Death Shadow with Mistress Bobble, Traverse the Uvenwald, and Street Wraith forming this nice tight little package. And uh, even like the Bridge from Below Vengevine stuff that is relatively new. And these are things uh, in the case of Hardened Scales and KCI and Death Shadow, like these things existed for a while. Like the Bridge from Below stuff existed too. Citrus Supplier certainly helps those decks, but they were seeing some play uh, within the last year or so, just like these red green, like super weird variants that had Bridge from Below, Hangerback Walker, Walking Bulletin, and Vengevine. And it's like, that's the package, right? That's all you need to build around. But it, it still took years for someone to put those together in a deck. Or not yeah. years, I guess, in the case of Walking Ballista. But like once Hangerback is there, you know, you can start building that sort of deck. Right, right. I mean, if you're looking for a spot to apply what we're talking about today, finding packages, finding engines to push on as hard as you can, Modern's where it's at. There's so many that still have so much exploration left in them. And, you know, are most of them going to fail? Yes, absolutely. Get over it. It's okay. It's okay to fail at this endeavor. It's okay to fail when you're building decks. It's okay to build really, really awful bad decks. That's fine because you can't find the great ones without making those mistakes. And if you look at the modern format, you're right. You know, Death Shadow was around forever. And it's it's not like it was an invisible card. I almost played it at Pro Tour Valencia. I almost played it with Verils, the Scar Striped in conjunction with Ink Moth Nexus and like a green black 
Jundish type deck, um, but the same kind of principles, Thoughtseize, Fetchlands, doing damage to yourself quickly. I'm glad I didn't play it. It would have been horrible, but it was an idea that I was poking around with way back then. And I was kind of like, eh, this isn't quite there. But then a new print comes along and you know, someone went back to Death Shadow at that point and was able to find the pieces to put it together. There's a ton of this stuff out there in modern right now that you can be pushing on, prodding on, and maybe getting paid off with a completely broken archetype. Yeah, I, I think modern is super important, especially at the time of us recording this, because there are so many good examples of this just being completely true and people actually winning Grand Prix because of it. Lori, I think, was the person who won uh, GP Prague, and he said that he had never played Affinity before. It was just like late night audible into this hardened scales deck that had already been doing pretty well. It put three players in the top eight of one of the Magic Online Championship Series events. And then it's now it's a Grand Prix winner. Hardened Scales is 5X in price. And you're likely going to be seeing a lot more of this deck in tournaments coming up. It's just incredible to me because it's it's been there like the whole time. And Matt Nass and Sam Pardee put a lot of work into actually refining the deck and people latched onto it. And same thing with like Crow Clan Ironworks and even Faithless Looting Bedlam Reveler, you know, like these things have been there and they have been good. They are powerful, especially in new standard formats. That sort of thing exists too. And I imagine that there's going to be a lot of really cool cards in Ravnica that are able to do these sorts of things. Yeah, there always are. There's always places to push. Sometimes they are good enough, sometimes they are not, but there's always things to explore. You know, a couple interactions I have my eye on in modern if you want to know where I'm starting these days, Arbor Elf, Utopia Sprawl, I, I think that's an awesome combination and is completely underutilized as it stands right now. You can talk about Knight of the Relicary Retreat to Coral Helm, I think is still underexplored. Uh, obviously, we see it from time to time. And I think that might actually be a GP winner as well, if I remember correctly. But there's yeah. a lot of other things you can do with I mean, that's a small package, right? It's, it's very easy to get those two cards in the same deck together. And you can look at a lot of different options to explore when you're playing that set of cards. So I, I really like these small packages that do fundamentally broken things. And turns out winning the game is a fundamentally broken thing to do, <laughs> which Knight of the Relicary plus Retreat to Helm often does. Yeah, assuming you don't blow it. That combo is pretty awkward. It, it is. It's a, it's a very awkward combo, but... You you can do it. It works. I'm scared, man. No, no. You'll figure it out. <laughs> Arbor Elf Utopia Sprawl is especially one that I think is completely underutilized because it gets pigeonholed into like the green devotion decks. Yeah. And these these weirdo like tier four decks, basically. But then, you know, people put it into Ponza with Tireless Tracker and that's that's like another thing that was like, oh, this deck got refined a lot and now it's good. But is it actually the Stone Rain aspect of it, uh, aspect of the deck, or is it Arbor Elf Utopia Sprawl, you know? Right. And uh, this also calls out to another point I want to talk about is that where redundancy creeps up, it's also a field that's ripe for exploitation. So if you ever see a second Arbor Elf effect, that's when the alarm bell should really go off. When you have reliable access to this effect and are able to consistently generate you know if there was eight arbor elves and eight utopia sprawls be it wild growth or whatever effect then you have a super consistent engine that you're always just going to have access to things get wild at that point that's always something i watch out for as well 
But you're right that this has been shoehorned into the devotion strategy right now. But look, even that strategy, it's just to print away. There's there's so many things that could turn devotion on its head. It's this cool kind of recursive deck that you can build around Eternal Witness or you can build it around Genesis Wave. There's a million different directions to take green devotion. And Nykthos is a really, really powerful land. So that calls out to the same thing. There's something to push on there. I think it wouldn't shock me if we're sitting here a year from now talking about Arbor Elf Utopia Sprawl now being added to the list of GP winners. Yeah. For Devotion specifically, there was a list that popped up semi-recently. I think we talked about a little bit that was Collected Company Primal Command. Mm -hmm. And it was just sort of like this this beatdown-y green deck that accompanied into a bunch of devotion for Nykthos, and then you would primal command for a greater hope behemoth or whatever. And even that is a new-ish take on the deck that was previously just like, oh, I'm going to play Primeval Titan. Like, I want to get to six mana. And this deck's like, nah, just get to four mana. You know, that's that's completely fine. All right, that's good enough. And I, I think that Utopia Sprawl is kind of at odds with things like Collected Company, which is why a lot of people aren't trying it. But there's also a lot of Court of Calling Eldritch Evolution decks that could be utilizing it too, where they're just used to playing Birds of Paradise and Noble Hierarch when they don't necessarily have to. Excellent point. Yeah, there, there's other directions to take it where you don't have to pay the cost of having a non-creature spell in your deck. Yeah, and I, I definitely agree with you on redundancy. There are some things that I'm looking at with like Areo, where now you have uh, Mox Opal, Mox Amber, Mishra's Bobble as very, very good playable zero mana artifacts. And it's like, okay, well, maybe I'll play that with Monastery Mentor and Repeal and stuff. So Psy is also a very playable modern card, I think. So there are just a lot of things going on right now that I think that people are just sort of sleeping on. Agree entirely. So for those people out there who, you know, say things like, oh, I I think I've plateaued. How do I get over this? I, I think that this sort of episode should kind of be a wake-up call because there's always so much to learn from magic, whether it's reading articles, watching streams, even looking at deck lists, and just seeing what other people are doing, trying to figure out why they're doing it, and just learning these things yourself or practicing these things yourself. You know, just like Brian said, when a, a preview season starts, pick some cards, build around them, go as deep as you can. It doesn't matter if it's like, a goblin chain whirler or an inspiring statuary, you know, just either it's super good on rate or it's just a super cool card that you want to see how far it can be pushed, whatever works, you know, just get those reps with deck building and trying to figure out these interactions and what you can do with them. For sure. Nothing would make me happier than to see our deck list channel in the game podcast discord for our patrons filled with just loads and loads of decks all exploring these underappreciated underutilized cards i I would love to see our listeners take this to heart and really go into this next preview season with a brewer's eye and trying to make a lot of different ideas work well yo man five and uh vtcla are definitely two that i see doing this a lot yes for sure and I, i yeah i do think that we should have a brew or something similar channel you know maybe maybe we need to differentiate between the stock lists and the experimental lists that might be an exciting experiment to try for this next preview season let's see if it inspires creativity in people i'm on board with this idea i think it's a good approach 
I think that anything that we could use to inspire people to actually start doing this would be great. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe we just give them homework assignments where it's like this card, y'all build around it and just see what happens. I like it. I like it. I, I mean, I know we've all escaped from homework at this point, probably happily. So if you were anything like me in school. Oh, man, this this is the good kind of homework, though. Right. This is the type of stuff I like to do. So it doesn't feel like homework anymore. That was very rare when I was actually in school. But it, <laughs> it happened once in a blue moon. Word. So uh, another thing that kind of got me thinking about this topic is not only Michael Majors, but just like playing RPGs. And uh, one thing that I brought up to you before the cast was like you play Link to the Past and it's like the world is closed off until you get the hook shot. Yeah, I, I really like this analogy. Let us be your hook shot here. Let us send you around the map grappling to various objects and trying out new decks all over the place. But you're spot on. I mean, Magic is limitless unless you install limits upon yourself. And a lot of people do. I mean, I see it over and over and over. People who want to wall off their thinking. And I get why they are doing it. Because it's easier. I mean, there's so much information to process in Magic. It's almost like a coping mechanism where if I just have to focus on this one thing, I can be good at this one thing and use that to catapult myself to success. And I agree. You you can do that. I think you can make yourself a good... And maybe even a great player by focusing on one narrow aspect and you know having perfect technical play and really making your money that way. But to be one of the all-time greats, I think this is an essential part of your game. And it's also just a really fun part of your game to be able to work on and be able to add to your repertoire. Yeah, magic appeals to me because it is an endless puzzle. And I don't want there to be an endless puzzle and then to me just be, you know, hanging out in the the town you start in, in a link to the past or whatever. It's like, I want to get the hook shot, explore the entire world and see what's out there and just know more things like learn these things and even be able to circle them back and integrate them into the red, black aggro deck that you were playing. You know, I mean, one of the, my most dominant streaks was with green, white tokens when I was able to sideboard into a control deck. And that is a thing that I would not have thought to do had I not been doing it with other similar decks in the past. You know? Right, right. And it was a deck that was widely played. People played green white tokens all the time, but they never figured out how to do this. That's that's just crazy to me. Yeah. And, you know, you couldn't, it sounds almost unfathomable, but have you ever seen anyone board into a control strategy with red black? No. And look, maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe that's just not what you want to do in this format. And it's, the control cards aren't good enough, but this is something you have in your utility belt now and you can bust it out and try and see, well, what happens if I bring in a bunch of Hour of Devastations and card advantage sources? Can I just play a controlish game and rely on my top end to carry me through? I think that the answer is probably no, given the shape of the format, but you could see how if the format just broke a few different ways, if the metagame got shaped in a different way, maybe that's something we would be doing right now. And you would have it in your arsenal if it's something you had explored in the past the thing with green white was that you had these cards that allowed you to bridge very effectively like oath of nissa and uh, nissa vastwood seer where you had selective tools that helped you hit your land drops which is obviously really nice for a mid-range deck but also just incredible for a, a sort of beatdown deck that's transitioning into a control deck mm-hmm. so yeah 
Red Black doesn't really have that sort of thing. And Standard doesn't really have that sort of thing. Like ever since Tireless Tracker left, we've been kind of devoid of that thing. And Karn to some degree serves that purpose, but it is also- Karn and Chandra were the two I was going to suggest as close as we get at this point, the Planeswalkers. Yeah, but you know, Chandra is such a brick sometimes. Yeah. Not being able to hit Lance and everything. Like Karn is the actual true thing that does this, but it costs four, which is typically higher than- we've had for these effects, which, you know, I think we are spoiled to be honest, but it also places like a high cost on it. Like Nissa, you could often just like slip and play on turn three mm-hmm. and not fall behind because of it. But Karn is not the same way, you know? Right. But yeah, uh, th- these sorts of things are definitely valuable lessons to stick with you. And I think that you even integrated this a couple weeks ago by including Drakehaven into your Turbo Fox sideboard. Yeah, uh, maybe unsuccessfully, but uh, that's certainly a callback to you know transformational strategies I have used in the past. And having experience linking a main deck plan with a eventual sideboard plan, which is really what I had to do to make that deck work. There had to be a reasonable build that allowed us to transition from one to the other and hieroglyphic illumination and sensor were the keys to that build. Uh, And it it called back to that same type of thing you're talking about right now, having cards that play well both ways, played well in the Turbo Fog plan and it played well in the Drakehaven plan. So having identified those kind of good two-way cards before makes it easier in the future. Yeah. And even something simple like that, just identifying what would be a good bridge, Mm -hmm. I think is is pretty valuable. And like I said, that was the thing that we were always missing. But Tireless Tracker was exactly that card. And before it, it was Nyssa. And we haven't really had anything since. Uh, I guess like the energy package was kind of nice for that. It did give you that consistency. But then all the cards got banned, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's Rogue Refiner is what we lost there, but uh, probably for the best. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not I'm not upset about it at all, but it is just one of those things. So hopefully this does help and this does help open people's minds to the sort of things that exist in magic and the type of things that they could out there be out there doing themselves. And I don't want to hear any more questions about like I've plateaued. What do I do? million things. There's always a million things to be doing. Start with this. We'll we'll give you more by the time you finish this and get this figured out. We'll give you another episode to give you a, another way past your <laughs> plateau. Hopefully, hopefully. All right, time for question of the week. Retro on Ice asks, "Do you think slash when do you think we will see the next Finkel or Kai? Does the size of the game preclude players of that stature with sheer force of statistics going against them?" This is a cool question. I always like delving into the history of magic and being Hall of Fame season. This seems like a nice time to do the typical Finkel Kai comparisons. As far as my answer, we might be seeing the next Finkel or Kai already in PV. I think he is getting to the point where he is in the discussion for the number two player of all time. And I don't know if he has earned that title yet. I would have to think a little bit more carefully before I put that distinction on him. But he's close. He's very close to overtaking Kai. And I have the feeling, given the devotion of Kai to the game and the devotion of PV to the game, he eventually will overtake Kai. I could be wrong. Things can always change. But that's kind of where I stand on that. In terms of kind of a new prospect on the future who could 
exceed what these people have accomplished at this point. You would think, given the access to information that people have now and the fact that we're starting to see a generation who grew up with that information, you know, you look at all the Kiefer's or really good young players like, you know, Jonathan Rossum, a host of really just talented. Oliver too comes to mind, young people who have grown up around the game and are now reaching their competitive apex. It seems like they should be able to outachieve what was done in the past. But that being said, while they also have access to this information, so does everyone else around them. And the quality of the average player has gotten so, so much better than if you go back you know, when Finkel and Kai were in their prime, although Finkel may still be in his prime, who, who knows at this point. But but going back 20 years or so, it was such a different game. And there were few people who actually knew how to draft, few people who played constructed at anything approaching a competent level, whereas the average Pro Tour player these days is very, very good. So they have that working against them. I don't know that the statistics will ever be matched, but... I have a feeling that if there was some way of just measuring pure talent, pure ability to play magic, almost certainly the torchbearers of the past are going to be eclipsed in the coming years. It it just makes sense given the access to information. Yeah, I don't know. You say that, but at the same time, it's so difficult. Like, I agree with you that, that Paulo is basically already there, although I think it's unfair to move him up above Kai just because... It's kind of weird that, you know, like Kai has kind of moved on and he's been doing other things with his life and been working a bunch and stuff. And Finkel, yeah, like you said, somehow is still in his prime. I don't know. Uh, Kai clearly is not. But I don't know. I feel like it should just still be ordered in like how in, in what order they appeared, kind of, if that makes sense. But that's not how these lists work, right? I mean, we we have to we have to somehow account for the passage of time and for the different errors in which they played and all that stuff has to factor into your equation. And that's why I point out like the impossible raw skill measurement, which I think that's the measurement that the players of the current era will be able to eclipse the old guard. But there's no possible way of knowing that. We're not going to be able to take a raw skill measurement. So it's kind of a a worthless gesture, but that's still where I stand. It seems to me like they have to be able to eclipse what's been done in the past. I don't know. I just, I I feel like it's wrong. I feel, you know, if if we keep going down this path, if, if Luis kept playing and then we start seeing that Kai was like the fourth best player of all time or whatever, it's just, it doesn't seem fair to me, you know? But he, but that could be true. I I mean, I, I get it because Finkel and Kai have become so elevated and they're clearly on this pedestal above everyone else who's played magic. It, it, it's always been Finkel Kai, Finkel Kai, Finkel Kai. And it's been like that through our entire relationship with the game, basically. As long as there's been a pro tour, short of the very, very early days, that's the way things have been, Finkel and Kai. But that's not Kai, Kai won like seven pro tours in a row. And that is an incredible, and I don't mean to diminish his accomplishments in any way. He's obviously phenomenal. And what he did in his prime is unfathomable, completely unfathomable. But like I said, different world. I, I mean, if you yourself were able to somehow teleport back to that time period, maybe you're doing the same thing. It's impossible to say. So 
That's why we make these distinctions and that's why we have these silly arguments, which don't really amount to much. But I, I do think at some point the hierarchy is going to be upset. That's just the way these things go. These things seem insurmountable in the moment. But as time passes and things change, these accomplishments get eclipsed. Yeah, uh, I think Kai could do a better job branding. Maybe Finkel just naturally gets branded by Owen, I think. <laughs> and gets helped along that way. He needs a better pitch Kai, Yeah, you know, Kai is mostly silent. And it's it's just sad because I do think that Paulo is number three. Well, I mean, maybe Nassif is supposed to be number three. I don't know, but like... You know, Paulo is certainly up there. Paulo is is one of the all time greats, mm-hmm. and you you can't reasonably argue with that. And as far as other people, like who is going to be the next person after that? I mean, assuming he's clean, Marcio. Like, it is very easy to see that Marcio is basically good at every single Magic format, and he is doing something different than everyone else. I don't know, man. It's it's so hard to top eight. You know four pro tours in three years or whatever. Yeah. I I don't know. You know, I obviously discount a lot of Marcio's accomplishments because of his past and that sucks, but he has to bear the consequences for what went on in the past. And no, absolutely. And I don't even want to get into this. I'm just saying that like that stuff aside, you know that he is great at magic and he's putting up the results. I do. And Maybe 10 years down the line, we'll be like, oh, yeah, he he wasn't cheating at all during this entire time. And now we know. Right. But like, I, I think that that sort of thing is possible. There are folks like you mentioned, Oliver, too, and a bunch of other young kids coming up like Oliver Tomiko, where it's like if, if they continue playing magic and continue to get good and study and and learn and everything. Yeah. I mean, they have the amount of time to put in some insane numbers over the course of like 10 or 15 years on the pro tour. Absolutely. Right. And hopefully they will be incentivized to do so via a bustling and robust pro scene that is adequately supporting its players. Uh, Or they become independently wealthy somehow. I guess that's an option too. keep buying those scratch offs. Maybe they'll come through for you. (laughs) Uh, Realistically, I think what has happened so far is that there have been a lot of people who have been, capable of hitting this threshold where I think Heezy was probably one of them. Mm-hmm. Gadiel was one of them, yeah. Luis, and they just end up moving on and focusing on other things. And that is just generally what happens. It's kind of a, a sad turn of events because, you know, maybe we won't get another Finkel Kai PV in the next five, 10 years or so, but who knows? Yeah. I mean, it feels almost unfair not to mention Owen in that context because Number, yeah, one, yeah, number of course. one, he's great. Number two, well, I can't picture him moving on ever. I don't know why. I just don't no. ever see him doing anything besides playing magic. And given that and how great he is, he should eventually build a resume to compete with all of these people we're discussing right now. Yeah, I, not not mentioning Owen is certainly not fair, especially because uh, he basically has like Marcio's resume, but is definitely clean. Yeah. Yeah, Owen is one. I think Reed, Huey, like all of these people and there's numerous Japanese players too, like Kenji Oiso moved on. Yuya is still around. And I don't know. I don't know what his deal is. What something is going to click, man. And he's going to stop top 64 in every PT and start top 80. <laughs> start winning them instead. Yeah. It yeah. seems possible. I just, I don't know what it is. I don't know what is holding him back currently. 
you know, it's hard to say. Obviously, we don't know what the future is going to hold for these players, but it'll be interesting to see. I I think also, too, going back to Owen, I kind of forget how young he is just because he's been around forever. Like, he's, he's not old at all. I don't know his exact age, but he's certainly younger than I am. He's younger than you by a, a decent margin, I think. He is younger than me, and at one point I knew. But, yeah, I, I grew up playing PTQs with him, you know, in mm-hmm. the mid-2000s. So, yeah, I do just kind of see him as a peer, like, in the same age, that sort of thing. Right. But, yeah, he's, he's very clearly not. Yep. Basically, when you look at these players and you can say, like, oh, you know, they have something that no one else does. I think that's incredible. And I wish that, I don't know, maybe maybe it is a fault of Magic and OP to not be set up in such a way to incentivize those people to stick around. But regardless, I, I want them to stick around anyway. Like, I remember when Gadiel was moving on and I was just, like, very sad that he would not stay around in Magic to just, like, show people what's up, yeah. you know, like show people how good he is. And it's like, all right, you're going to take your genius, your skill set, go somewhere else and do something else awesome with it. And that's cool. But it's like, man, magic is the the arena that I want to see you in. Yeah. It's a little heartbreaking in that regard. And there's been a, a long history of people moving on to greener pastures. I wish we just made our pastures a little bit greener, but who knows what the years to come will bring. Yeah. Anything could happen. But in in the meantime, I don't know. I think there there's easily like 10 or 15 people we named that could be celebrated as potentially as good as these folks. And will they have the same legacy as them, which will ultimately determine uh, whether or not they are talked about in the same sentence or not? Who knows? Mm -hmm. But we get to wait and see. We get to see it all unfold, you know? So that's pretty rad, too. Yep. Can't wait. That's game. Good luck.